Welcome to Sustain. This is the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What was the command needed for like origin? Get the recurse? I, I don't know. I, okay, man, get man, get again all the time. That will be relevant. They're always kind of relevant. Before we introduce our amazing guest, I want to make sure you know who the other voices are on this podcast. I am, of course, Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. I am your host today on behalf of Sustain OSS and Open Source Collective, which is where I am newly employed, which is really cool. I can just sort of have sick days for once. Haven't had those in a long time. And Eric Berry. Eric Berry, how are you doing today? I'm actually kind of sick. So I, and I did take a sick day yesterday and I might take a sick day after this podcast. So yeah, I'm doing okay, I guess. Well, I'm glad you're honest. The bearded one is at least honest. Eric, I hope you feel better. Thank you for being here. We're going to have a great conversation with our guest. Our guest today is Emily Schaefer. Emily is calling in from Sunnyvale, California. She is a software developer for Google, which is pretty cool. Now, it's pretty interesting that I mentioned Google because Google has a large PR machine. And so Emily is not here on behalf of Google. She is here as a software developer who works at Google, which is pretty cool. Emily also is here because they, as well as she, works on Git, which is a really interesting program that maybe one or two of you may have heard of before. Emily, how are you doing today? I'm okay. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to see you here as well. So, Emily, I invited you on the program because we had a pretty interesting conversation at OspoCon. This was back in the fall of 2021. We were in Seattle, which is a lovely city that occasionally gets sun. I hear mythically. I, I haven't experienced it myself. And OspoCon was also collocated with the embedded systems conference this year. It's kind of LF, Linux Foundation, deciding, well, let's just host two conferences in one space, and that way we could build a hotel twice or something. Emily, can you tell me what you were doing there, just so we have some more context? So I've actually been going to the Embedded Linux conference for like four years or something. I started going actually when I was, before I started working on Git at all, I was working on OpenBMC. I was maintaining part of OpenBMC for a while. And I went to this embedded Linux conference and I was like, oh, this is really cool. And at that time, they had just glued it together with Open Source Summit for the first time, which is not the same thing as OspoCon. They just keep kind of piling more things into this one conference, which is fun to go to, but also a little weird. And so when I went the first time, I ended up going to like 50-50 firmware tracks from ELC and then interesting open source community kind of stuff from Open Source Summit. And I liked it so much that shortly after I went to that conference, I switched teams at Google and I stopped working on firmware and I started writing C instead, which is different, <laughs> is not the same thing, and working on Git full-time. And so I kept going and I've been going pretty much every year since then. It's nice that I can go to a lot of open source stuff, but then still sneak into like the OpenBMC and the RISC-V tracks and listen in on the firmware stuff that I miss. I love that. It is an interesting and weird conference because it does seem to have people from both sides. So thank you for coming from the other side of the aisle to join us here at the, I know, Ospo kind of. We do focus on Ospo's a bit too much. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because of the stuff we talked about with Git. Now, you've been working on Git for a while. Git is an open source project. It was 
founded by that guy, Linus. Can you tell me a bit about like its governance right now? Because I don't actually know a lot about who runs it and who works on it. Yeah. So shortly after Linus wrote the initial bits of Git, I think within just a couple, like maybe a year or two, don't quote me on that. Sometime in the short period after that, Linus handed off maintainership to Junio Hamano, who is continuing to be the maintainer. He still has been maintaining ever since. So he's been maintaining for like 15 years at this point. And at some point, I'm not sure when, Git became part of Software Freedom Conservancy. So now it's like it's fully foundationized. So Junio is kind of the big boss, but then we also have a technical leadership committee and that's got some like Ivar, not sure how to pronounce his last name, is like a contractor and he sits on that committee. We've got somebody from GitHub on that committee. And I think somebody from GitLab also, I think Christian Kuder is on that. And beyond that, I think the makeup of the community of the contributor base is actually interestingly about 50-50 people who are hobbyists or students and just doing it in their own spare time and people who are working at these big companies and getting a paycheck to work on it. That's fascinating to me. I mean, we've had Karen Sandler on the podcast before. She's the ED of the Software Conservancy Foundation, which is a really awesome foundation. It's one of many foundations. There seems to be one every other day now, which are hosting various open source projects. So thinking about software developers who are working on Git full-time and being paid to do so, I wonder if there's any influence on the project's trajectory in a way that keeps it independent. I know that all those companies aren't necessarily... One single company isn't paying for 50%. This isn't like Bitcoin mines. But I'm just curious whether or not things are moving in certain ways because of the amount of paid FTEs working on the project. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting phenomenon. It's really common for, or at least right now, the theme that all of these full-time engineers working on it, being paid to work on it. Most of us are working on supporting larger and larger Git projects. For example, like the Android code base is famously gigantic, too big to fit on your machine unless you go and buy a couple terabytes of hard drive. And Wait, what? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's huge. I think to do a full clone of Android, you need like 600 gigs of disk space or something. It's ridiculous. I'm sad that people won't be able to see the face that you're making right now. <laughs> this is like, why would, I mean, it gets a CLI. Why, why would you need that many? I'm just confused. I'm, I'm just, I'm just confused. This, Maybe I'm missing something. There are probably all note packages. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, that makes more sense. That's just I'll pad a bunch of times. <laughs> no, I mean, a lot of it is checking in binaries as many times as people have historically in the past 15 years said, like, don't check your binaries and to get everybody keeps coming up with reasons why actually we kind of need it or, oh, it's actually not such a bad idea. So there's actually quite a bit of work going into being able to support stuff like checking in binaries or having such huge, huge code bases. And in some ways, sometimes the big companies that are both trying to do this go about it in different ways. So one good example is that at the last Git Merge Summit, which was literally weeks before everybody locked down, Microsoft announced Scalar, which is a wrapper around Git and has since turned into kind of a fork of Git, unfortunately. And Scalar is specifically a set of configs and tooling for making Git work at huge scale. And that's interesting because 
that's actually what I work on a lot at my day job now is trying not with Scalar, as I'm about to say, but working on making Git work with with these huge repositories. I actually work a lot with the Android code base, which is why I know off head that it's huge. So we're actually trying to do this with like some combination of using submodules, using something called partial clone, which is like you only ever get the objects on your machine that you actually need. And if you realize you need some other object, your machine goes and does a just-in-time fetch from the server or ways to offload some of the objects from being from a single Git server to like CDNs or something like that to try and, and speed up the, just to try and make it easier so you don't have to have as much stuff on your disk at once. And so you don't have to clone, you know, all of this at one time in one single transaction from one sad Git server who's having to serve you for like two hours for your clone, that kind of thing. So I, I think it's interesting that these big companies have gone about this in such different ways. Like Scalar doesn't use submodules at all. I think it does use partial clone. It really heavily uses sparse checkout that we don't use very much. Sparse checkout is like, let's say I have one giant monorepo and I only ever work in the docs folder because I'm a tech writer and I don't care about any of the source code or binaries or anything. Why do I even have that stuff on my machine? I just want to download the docs folder. That's what sparse checkout's for. And that's a lot of what Scalar, I think, is around. And there've been some other historical approaches with like network file systems or like Git LFS is another kind of thing that... Yeah, uh, heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. And so all of these are kind of different approaches to the same thing. But interestingly, the whole project is still kind of moving to support bigger and, and harder Git code bases. I don't know if it negatively impacts Git for hobbyists, people who are just using Git like quote unquote normally. I don't think that there's a negative impact. We do try, at least on my team, we try really hard to keep those people in mind and not ruin their lives to make our lives better. And that's actually a really common pushback whenever we try to send something upstream. They'll say like, oh, this really should be behind a config because your world is magic and not everybody else is like this, like that kind of thing. So we do try to keep a balance. It's interesting to me. I mean, you mentioned the giant rock, which is now stuck in my head. I can't stop thinking about 600 gigabytes worth of Android kit. Like, why is that? Even, like, I just can't stop thinking about it. And it seems to me that to be a massive accessibility issue to have a very large database. It's a massive issue just to have the amount of technical, like, know-how to know how to navigate something like Git. Like, Git is not a small project. I mean, I remember looking at something like Minimist. So that's like Substacks project for, like, parsing arguments from the CLI for node modules. Minimus is, if I recall correctly, like maybe a few thousand lines. Maybe it's not huge. It's pretty easy to figure things out. But like Git is like such a huge monumental travesty of a project that like I just can't even imagine whether that ex like how many hobbyists do you have to have a terabyte of hard drive? I don't. Well, I do, yeah. but let's pretend. Yeah, that's something I've wondered a lot about. You know, I can't speak personally for Android. I never really did that. But I mentioned I worked on OpenBMC before, and that was a really weird scenario too, because OpenBMC was a minified Linux distribution specifically for something called a baseboard management controller, which is yep. a microcontroller that lives on the server, yep. on the server motherboard when the server is in. And so obviously your hobbyist is not going to have an enterprise class server just laying around. And OpenBMC doesn't really make sense in the context of just the microcontroller without the rest of the crap that's on the server. So that one was really weird in that way. 
once upon a time, I remember that somebody came into the OpenBMC IRC saying like, oh, you know, I'm kind of interested in getting a build of this to work on Raspberry Pi so that I can still contribute because I'm a hobbyist or whatever. And they actually like kind of got chased away because everybody else in the IRC or at least the louder people in the IRC were like, why are you even here? Like, this doesn't make sense on a Raspberry Pi. Go do something else. And like, that was not my favorite thing to happen. But yeah, I mean, my first thing I did when I got a Chromebook was installed Linux in a Chrome tab and then installed a, a DOS emulator and then played Commander Key. Like that was the first thing I did with a Chromebook because obviously I have this little toy. Like, what am I going to do? Let's see if I can get Linux on it. Let's see if I can get DOS on it. Why not? So like poo-pooing that sort of activity always makes you kind of sad. I think what's interesting to me about all the things you're talking about is that you're really trying hard to figure out users being new contributors to the project, as well as just the users of Git, which is obviously like the primary core audience for Git. I realize we haven't mentioned what Git is for everyone here. It is a versioning control system. It is a tool you use to figure out what lines of code should be put together with other lines of code. It forms the foundation of GitHub, which is unrelated. GitHub just uses Git, but it's not part of Git. That's pretty much Git. Unless I messed up, Emily is laughing. So I, no, that's it. Okay, cool. Git's pretty great. So, wow. Okay. Moving back to dealing with contributors. When we talked in Seattle, we had a really interesting conversation about privacy concerns for Git logs. And I had never considered this before. And it seems relevant to me because as we deal with open source, as we think about open source sustainability in the long term, a lot of what we think about is archiving, is making sure that people can access code appropriately going forward. That's part of what makes code open source has to be accessible. Why that's in the license for OSI is kind of confusing to me, but that's definitely one of the qualifications for open source code. And that maintainers are paid and that the, the project is like viable in some way and that people are able to comment on and off a project. And so dealing with things like privacy in the Git chain is really interesting. Specifically, we talked about the idea of dead name, which is where Sometimes people want to change their emails or names, which are attached to your Git commits whenever you put something into Git. So I'd never thought about that. How do you change a Git commit by like just changing the name and email? Because those are part of the hash. When you make a, a save using Git, you put everything through an algorithm that includes the name and email, and it's immutable. You can't really change that. So I was really curious about what efforts you've done there. And I'm curious today. How is that process working? And is it possible to change names? And why is this important? So I think you did a really good job summarizing the, the issue here, right? Since we originally came up with the commit format 15 years ago or whatever, because your name and your email address are part of it, there's not really a good way to change that. So even back in the dinosaur ages 15 years ago or 10 years ago or so, we started to yep. realize that people's email addresses do change. We don't still work at the same job forever. Maybe I still want to contribute to Git. Maybe I ditch my Hotmail account or whatever. <laughs> and so for that particular set of concerns, we started using something called a mail map. And this is a tracked file in your Git repository that basically says like, old email address is this, it should always appear as this new email address instead. So even though the actual data on the disk in the commit object has old email at hotmail.com. 
when I open it up with Git log or Git show or in my, I don't know, visual studio, right. Or if I like open it up in VS code or something, it's going to say new email at gmail.com or new email at ProtonMail or whatever, because I have this map from old email to new email. So the old data is still there because it's immutable, because it's part of the history, right? Like, so to fully get rid of this old email, we would have to recalculate the entire Git repo because in addition to being based on the code and the name of the author and the date and all this other stuff, commit objects are also based on the hash of the commit object that preceded them, which means that if you change something in the history, you have to change everything else through the rest of history that happened afterwards. So it is actually really disruptive to go and change the commit itself, which sucks. I think if I could go back in time, and this is this is sort of what we've we've generally discussed and agreed upon when we talk about this problem with the Git contributor base. If we could go back in time, probably we wouldn't use people's name and email address. Probably we would already have made some mapping like, you know, independent ID, like today my email, my name maps to contributor ID, A, B, C, D, E, F, or whatever. And later when I change it, I can just say, oh, the new mapping is this thing instead. That way I don't have my old name somewhere sitting around on other people's hard drives. So the thing with the mail map is that it's all in plain text, which means that if the only people who ever add entries to the mail map are trans people who've changed their name, for example, now the internet troll who really hates trans people have a nice handy tidy list of all of the names of the people that I should go harass and what their current email address is. That's bad. <laughs> so the mail map is not a perfect solution. We've talked a little bit about hashing the previous side of the mail map. So instead of saying old email address to new email address, we say hash of old email address. So instead it says like one, two, three, four, five. To yeah new email. And that way, anytime that we're about to insert a mail map change, we can instead say like, oh, the old email address is old email at Hotmail, or it could be this hash thing, one, two, three, four, five, and look it up that way. So we did see a patch come in for that. It didn't get a lot of traction. It didn't end up going in mostly because people immediately said, wow, but I'd really like to, you know, figure out who's who in this old thing so that I can tell, like, make sure that actually this this hash is correct. So what I'd really like is an extra tool to go through the history and find, you know, make me all of these hashes of all of these email addresses. And I'd like to check that in too. And the contributor who wrote the original, we call it like left-hand side crypto or left-hand hashed or something, mail map, who wrote that initial patch said like, if you're going to submit that patch, I'm not going to submit this one because it will be completely useless. So yeah. that kind of sucked, right? Like it's still a brute forcible problem, which is unfortunate. Yeah, that is unfortunate. It's interesting to me. I'm not trans. I'm male. I've always identified as male, but I changed my name. My middle name is different than the name I go by now. And I do not like being called my middle name. I went by it for 18 years. Those weren't a particularly good 18 years in my life. And I pretty much left that name behind when I went to college and I haven't really looked back. I was not committing to Git at that time, nor to any real repo. I learned to Git much later, but I wouldn't like to go around and have people be like, oh yeah, that person, is that the same person as this person? It's like, I mean, yeah, sort of, I guess I share some genetic DNA with that dude, but like I've hopefully matured and moved on and my name is different. So I can see why this is important. Sad to me that people didn't let that pass. 
What's interesting to me, though, is the way that it's gone about, right? So you have to be really cognizant for this sort of low-level code, which is used by millions and millions of people, probably hundreds of millions, to think about not just the technical aspects, but the emotional aspects and the aspects of like, how is what we're doing going to influence the social lives of other developers going forward? So that's what I just wanted to highlight. And I guess, thank you for putting in the effort so far. Hopefully we can find a non-brute forceful way to solve that problem. Or is there any way to like sign a petition to get the one thing put in, but not the other thing put in and put my current name on that position? Patches, uh, welcome, please. <laughs> Patches, welcome. <laughs> Yeah, which would be cool. I like that. Does Git still use a massive email list to talk about all the patches? Have they switched to GitHub yet? Or GitLab? Yeah, we still use a massive email list. So you ask if we switch to GitHub. The situation's a lot more nuanced than that. So we actually do have a nice little shim called Git Git Gadget. So if you were to submit a pull request to the Git project, you would get a, a bot reply saying, hey, I can format this into an email for you. You need, you know, there's a little bit of anti-spam stuff built into that. But what that does is then take your topic branch and format it into a nice thing and then send that off to the mailing list. And then any replies that that gets on the mailing list, I think the bot cross posts back into the PR thread, but it doesn't go both ways. So you do still have to ultimately interact on the mailing list. So if I send my series out with Git Gadget, somebody replies to me. If I reply on the PR again, that's not going anywhere. I have to go back to the mailing list and actually reply to people with email. So it sounds like there's a lot more tooling than I expected. I'm working on around Git. I tried to spin a patch seven years ago, eight years ago, and it did not go anywhere, mainly because I had no idea how to convince people that my patch was worthwhile. And so gave up at the first sign of someone being like, it's stupid. It's like, oh, clearly I'm stupid. I will leave forever, which happens, which is fine. I'm not stupid, but I would, I was stupid to assume that I was stupid. Moving forward, I'm curious, you were working on a similar project before you switched to Git. Do you have any idea how many contributors are hobbyists? You said somewhere around 50% are people who are paid by organizations. And another 50%, are they also working for some reason, for capitalist reasons? Or are they working because they're just interested in working on Git? I'm not sure. I know we have a non-trivial number of like retirees who are just doing yeah. it for fun. One thing that we really value in Git especially, but in open source more generally, I haven't found a better name for it, even though I think this is gross, but we call it scratching your own itch. So you're going around about your day hacking in the dark on your laptop with your hoodie pulled up and you go, man, I really wish that Git did this thing differently. And you go and look at the Git code base and you go, oh, I know, see, I can fix this. And you send a patch to make it work differently. We try to be really open to that kind of thing. We get that kind of patches quite a lot. That's usually the type of hobbyist contribution that we do get. As far as your experience about somebody made some comment on my code review, they must think I'm stupid. I'm going to go away and hide in a hole forever. We try really hard not to do that anymore. We've tried really hard to be more cognizant about that lately. I'm really sorry that that happened to you. <laughs> no, it's okay. I don't have any emotions attached anymore. It's good. I think you're fine here, but it, the statute of limitations wow. has expired. Only five years. So, okay, good. You're fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am curious about the onboarding process. For Can you talk to me about how you get new contributors and how you make them sit? I am so excited that you asked that. So we actually have a really cool 
tutorial thing specifically for people who are trying to learn how to contribute to Git. And I'm excited that you asked about it because I wrote it when I onboarded to Git myself. I said, hmm, there's no really good way to learn how the code base is organized, how to do patches, how to respond on mailing lists, what to expect, all this kind of stuff. So I wrote a little like step-by-step tutorial. It's called My First Contribution. It's checked into the Git code base, if anybody's curious. It's like rendered documentation on gitscm.com, all this stuff. But My First Contribution is step-by-step and it, it walks you through adding a new Git subcommand called PSUH instead of push. And the the premise is that lots of people seem to be trying to run this command and it doesn't exist. So obviously it should exist. And it prints a little pony saying hello, because obviously that's what PSUH must mean. So that piece of documentation has been really valuable for us. I've gotten quite a lot of feedback on it. A lot of people using it. One time I did get a pull request during like Hacktoberfest or something of somebody trying to fix the typo in it through the whole document, completely missed the point. <laughs> like, oh, there's a typo in here. But that I think has led to a really positive onboarding process for a lot of our new folks. We also have a, like, it's called Git Mentoring. We have a little Google group mailing list thing set up. It's not visible unless you join it, but anybody can join it. So mostly that means it's not being indexed by certain search engines. So if you ask any stupid questions there, it's not going to show up on search 10 years later or something. And that's actually not getting as much use as I would like to see. But once in a while, we do have really valuable conversations on there. I love that. Can you talk to me about a guide for people who are also interested in writing something like my first contribution for their own project? Where should they start? It's a little bit chicken and egg kind of thing. This sort of document only works well if you already don't know the stuff that's going to go into the document. It works the best for people who are learning. That's why I think this was so successful was because I didn't know any of this stuff when I decided I was going to write the document. I learned it the whole way. And that meant that I didn't have like, oh yeah. And then you just clone the code base and never like say like, where from, like, how much is it going to, like, how big is it going to take? What command to run? That kind of thing. So What I would suggest, and I actually also have given a talk about this in the past, what I would suggest is to grab somebody who's interested in joining and then say, hey, you know what would be great is, and then have them write this kind of document. That works a little bit better if you're paying them. But if somebody very frequently, especially around like Google Summer of Code, will have people come in and say like, oh, I'm interested in contributing to this project. I don't know where to start. Give me something to do. And this would be a great thing to hand off to somebody asking like that, I think. I like that a lot. What sort of working groups does good governance have? I mean, do you have a working group that's dedicated towards user experience or design or anything similar? Security working group? We have a security working group sort of in that we have private security list and that's mostly for stuff like undisclosed CVEs if we need to get a patch in before disclosure. We don't really have working groups in that way. Once upon a time, we don't do this anymore, but we did used to have like a cross company meeting between Google folks and Microsoft folks or GitHub folks as they soon became. And that was more like, how do we make Git work at scale without both of us developing two separate things? As I mentioned earlier, that had mixed success (laughs) in that now we're doing two separate things anyways, sort of. There's not a ton of traction towards working groups in general yet. 
I think coming very soon, we will at least have a workshop on better UX practices. The announcement about that actually just went out like last Tuesday or something. So I think that's going to be coming very hot off the presses very soon. And that may or may not turn into a regular meeting working group. We'll just have to see how the workshop goes. Awesome. I really look forward to hearing about that. Can you talk to me about, or do you have any experience as I, like I'm envisioning you right now as a normal developer who works on Git full time, not someone who's senior who like has been there forever and knows absolutely everything and not someone who's new, just your awesome, average, incredibly cognizant, but not like in any way middling incompetency, but like really, really great person who works on Git. Can you talk to me about your experience of having a foundation be the home for Git? Whether or not you notice SCF actually like pulling any strings to make it work for you or whether being on the project as a developer is like, yeah, is it a foundation? I guess I don't really think about software conservancy. I like their work, but like, I'm just curious what your experience is on a day-to-day basis. The biggest experience, like the biggest way that conservancy kind of shows up I would say is that they fund outreachy interns for us every year. So we participate in outreachy. I love outreachy. I've hosted twice. I try to help out. It's getting harder and harder lately for me to have time as I transition out of the like just run of the mill new person hanging out on get all the time to a more senior role internally. Unfortunately, that means that I've got a little less time. Other than that, we do have conservancy available for like code of conduct escalations, if necessary. Those, as far as I'm aware, don't happen that often. Although when they do happen, I don't get much visibility into them because they're usually done confidentially. So having Conservancy to support us there is really nice. I would say that usually we lean on them for funding for stuff like workshops, but in practice, that actually is typically funded by the people who are paying a lot of developers, like Google will fund something or like GitHub, I think, funds most of when we have like our in-person conferences back when we used to have those, that kind of thing. Those were nice. Yeah. I miss it. Cool. I'm really getting a, a much better handle on what it's like to be part of this project, which is really interesting for me because I am on the other side of this conversation so much. The amount of hours I put in days, weeks, months of my life talking to people from other foundations being like, how do I institute a good code of conduct? Or how do we make sure that all of the projects within our foundation are blossoming and blooming and have a diversity and a ladder of enforcement and have money to do with things? And what do we do with lawyers to make sure that we're able to sue the right people and so on? Maybe not that, but software conservancy does go out and like do what they can to make sure that things can stay in the courts as open source. So it's really interesting to see it from your perspective. I also really love the new contributor documentation. That is like the coolest thing ever. I often write those as well. And so I'm glad that there's someone else out there doing God's work. Thank you. What I'm curious about now, because I am noticing we are running up on time. I also noticed that Eric, who has been feeling a bit sick, has been pretty quiet. So it's okay, Eric. We'll get to you in a second with Spotlight. You are still a host, even if you are the silent one. Emily, what are you most excited about for the next six months, two years? What in Git? Like what, what's really interesting you going forward? What I really should say is submodules because that's what I've been working on is better submodule support. But if I'm being completely honest, we're like probably 60% of the way through landing an update to 
the way that Git hooks are managed. And so what that is, is like in the course of a regular Git operation, once in a while, there's pieces that you might wish to make a little bit more custom or run some of your own code or something. For example, like you might want to have some script to check your code base before you finish making a commit and have that happen automatically every time you try to make a commit. Yeah. So right now, you make these Git hooks by writing a script or other binary named pre-commit, for example, and placing it into your .git slash hooks directory which is cool because we usually tell people don't ever go into .git for any reason whatsoever because that's where all of the super secret magic sauce is. So I actually designed with a lot of help from the community overall, I designed a way for us to actually configure these hooks through like git config. So that means that you can set up a hook like in your home directory slash git config or something and have this hook run on all of your projects without having to like copy and paste it into every single one of your projects. Thank it also you. means that you can have, yeah, yeah, right? It also means that you can have more than one hook running in the same event. So like if I want all of my hooks on my entire machine to look for printf, WTF is going on here, but in my one specific Git project, I also want to look for, for example, does this commit use C++ style comments? which I am still not out of the habit of using. But obviously, I don't want to run that hook in my C++ project elsewhere on my machine. So then I can configure the watch for debug printfs thing globally, and then I can configure the you know no C++ style thing locally to the Git project. And all of that can kind of be done through the magic of configs, which is a language that you do learn anytime that you need to change something about Git permanently. A lot of people are used to opening up their config and poking around at stuff. So hopefully that makes it a little bit easier to set up stuff that way. That's like my baby. I'm really excited for it. I think we're going to see it this year. So I'm really, really, really excited for that. I love that idea. I use Git commit hooks. I think that will make my life better. I love messing with the config and I feel like there's more config I can mess with. So thank you for that. I have just one question for you. Having worked in Git for so long, do you ever reach for a GUI tool to manage your Git or do, are you just hardcore CLI? I think I'm the weird one here. I hate Git GUI, not just Git GUI the tool, but I hate all of them equally with extreme vitriol. I just don't like it. I, I don't even use Git log dash graph because it, I don't know. I don't like it, which is Weird because in every other part of my life, I love pictures and I will even make little hand drawings of Git trees sometimes if I need to, or like in Chalk Talks trying to explain something, I need the pictures. But for myself, yeah, I just use the CLI. My bash RC is full of lots of like little like shortenings for certain operations or whatever. My one big Git user flex is that I've aliased Git to just G because I use it that much. <laughs> Nobody else on my team does that. I'm kind of hardcore. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I do use Git GUIs. I use Git graph. And occasionally when I get really confused, I use source tree. I only use it to look at the graph because I sometimes get confused where branches are coming from and where they're going. So if I was a better botanist, I wouldn't need to do that, but I'm not. So Eric, if you want some love there, it's okay to use a Git GUI. It's well, I, I do. I use the GitHub GUI every time and I fought it at first, but it's become quite a bit better. The thing I like about these GUIs to me is that when I'm reviewing my code pre-check and it's really easy to manage those through a GUI versus having to do that through the command line. However, 
most tooling nowadays will build that in. So that's really not an issue for anybody, I guess. So I can give a hot tip here. One thing that I really love for reviewing my code when I'm getting ready to make a commit is git add-patch or git add-interactive. And so what that does is instead of just adding the entire file, you can even run it against your entire work tree. And it'll say, here's one tiny hunk of one tiny file that you changed. Do you want to stage this part? Do you want to stage this next part? Oh, iteratively through your entire work tree. I love it. I get to look at all my code again. I say like, oh yeah, that's right. Or like, when did I put that line in? Or, you know, oh, this really should be its own patch somewhere else. I use it all the time. So whatever works. And like I said, I'm the weird one on my team, at least for not using GUIs. Everybody else that I know does. It's, it's me that's weird, not you. You got to have somebody that's hardcore CLI. And I'm glad that Git re- is representing that with you. Definitely. I'm also glad about this conversation because I went back into my config and found some aliases that I had just forgotten about that look really useful. I should use them more. So thank you for that. Emily, we are running up on time. So I want to know where can people reach you on the web with their greater Git questions about how to get so. So I do use Twitter kind of. I've not been using Twitter for a while, but you can reach me at NASA Muffin on Twitter. Maybe sometime in the next month or two, I'll start using it again. You can also reach me on Mastodon at NASA Muffin at tech.lgbt. I'm actually very responsive there because it's less painful to read. So feel free to add there. Excellent. Thank you so much. But don't go yet. This is the part of the show where we get to talk about Spotlight. Spotlight is for projects or people who have just helped us and or we think just need a bit of love. So Eric Berry, what is your Spotlight today? It's probably one I've shared before, but considering the war and everything, I thought that it was good to bring it up again. I wanted to recommend set app.com, S-C-T-A-P-P.com. They're a Ukrainian company and you probably know them as MacPaw. They're the ones that create the clean my PC and clean my Mac. Anyway, what they've created is essentially a subscription-based app pool that you can get in. And I found when I'm reaching for tooling that is, I do fairly often, I found that the majority of the applications that are wrapped up inside of this subscription cover exactly what I need. It's very geared towards developers. So I I do recommend it. I recommend supporting this company as well. So setup.com. Thank you very much. Awesome. Mine is either Gergo or Dolce, who I'm not sure does a lot of open source anymore, who is the first person that says to me, you're using a GUI from now on after I force pushed over the database for like the fifth time and my first job using Git. So Gergo, thank you for being so, so patient. But also, I really actually want to give a shout out to Hub. GitHub.com slash GitHub slash Hub. Hub is all the extra tools that you didn't know Git had because they don't, but Hub has them for you. It just runs right up on top of the CLI and you can do all sorts of cool things like pull requests and show issues. And I use browse dash dash all the time to just go directly to the GitHub link for whatever project I made in my source directory. So Hub is awesome. Definitely the biggest multiplier I've had for using Git. Emily, what's your spotlight? I thought that I would call out the book that is the reason that I'm even a software developer. That's Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. It's available copyleft because it's the book itself is sort of a, how would I put it? 
like a radical treatise on hacking and open source. And it's a fiction sort of dystopian, but not so far away from reality dystopian kind of thing. I mean, it's teen fiction, which is, I read it when I was a teenager. I installed Linux right away. I learned how to code. It talks a lot about how to make great coffee. I think it's a fun read. It's got a sequel that's also a really fun read. Highly recommend it. You can get it for free online. Cory Doctorow is great. Emily, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on. It was wonderful to have you. This is definitely a more technical conversation than we normally have on this podcast, but I think it's very important. Richard, I agree with you. Yeah, see, because it's just, it's interesting to see from the other perspective. Again, we've had so many things from like the foundation side that I'm really grateful. And I hope that you continue to do awesome work with Git and elsewhere. And again, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun.